Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses summoned all Israel and said, Hear Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today. Learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of the Lord, because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up on the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the word of the Lord. We have spent the last few weeks uh, looking at Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is one of the places that you find the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And this has been part of a larger uh, study that we've been engaged in on the spiritual rhythms of spiritual maturity. How does one begin to take hold of the promises, the resources in Scripture and in the Gospel and begin to apply them in life in a way that they begin to know themselves more fully know God more fully, and experience His truth and goodness in everyday life. And this morning, we're looking at one that seems pretty foundational, and that is the idea of obedience. And I hope that as we get into this, that that would be uh, a topic that is actually thrilling and engaging and not something that is quite as scary. And with that in mind, let me pray for our time. Lord, I pray that... uh, The church at InTown would be a place of obedience, not obedience where we grit our teeth or out of duty or obligation simply, although at times, certainly that's valid, that we simply obey even though we don't know where you're leading. But Father, I pray that most of all, that we would be people who willingly and joyfully engage with the direction that you've laid upon us as a church and as individuals and his families, that we would take hold of your word, your promises, your law, and begin to live out those things in such a way that we radiate who Jesus is. Father, I pray that you would let us be people of the book, people of the law, people who do in fact obey. And we pray to that end and pray in Jesus' name, amen. When um, my family and I lived in the Bay Area, we lived across the street from these two twin boys, and they were just a few years older than our boys. And one day they were out in their front yard, and I think they were playing hockey or something, but I went inside and grabbed a couple of large oranges that had been in our refrigerator for quite some time, and they were kind of soft and mushy. And so I went outside and sailed them over the street and into their yard and landed them right at the feet of these boys that didn't see it coming. And and it just exploded all over them, and they jumped. And then, of course, they turned around and saw what was going on and started just chuckling, laughing, and ran to their mom's lemon tree, which has fresh lemons that are hard, and began to chunk them back across the street at me. And so by then, our boys were kind of in on the game, and they ran out, and we had an apple tree that didn't have very tasty apples. They were kind of sour, and so they were kind of the, you know, the, the support line, and they brought the apples to me, and I was, so we were just going at it for like five minutes. You know, fruit was sailing over 
Uh, and this was, I don't know, eight years ago, so I was like a grown man doing this. Um, well, we were just cracking up laughing, the boys, my boys, myself, until, until the twins' mom walks out in the front yard and sees her boys pulling her precious lemons off the tree and throwing them across the street. And she just let them have it and laid into them. And I'm across the street, apple in hand, wondering, what do I do? Um, I just wanted to disappear. I felt like I was two feet tall. Um, She's irate at her boys, and it's something that I instigated. And um, she looked over and finally made eye contact with me and realized that she's doing this with her adult, or they're doing this with their adult neighbor. And she just had this look on her face of utter confusion, like, what are you doing? Well, she ended up being pretty cool about it, but I felt like a little kid because I was acting like one. And it was fun, but I felt completely busted, you know, and our fun for that day was ruined. Don't we think about rules and obedience in this way, that they're something that are instituted to make sure that we don't have any fun? (laughs) They're there to put an end to our fun. We almost never think about following the rules as fun or as pathways to delight, and we probably all have images of people who are really good at following the rules, and they're generally people that are the least fun to be around. And we probably also think about people who were the hall monitors or the Pharisees for whom the rules began began to be the sum and substance of what life was all about. Well, is Christian obedience that way? Is it something that we just grit our teeth and get it done because otherwise God isn't going to be happy with us? Well, we're coming out of an extended season in the Christian church calendar of celebration. And we went through Advent, we went through Lent, we went through Easter, Pentecost, and these celebrations come one after another of the great things that God has done to win us, to rescue us, to grant us salvation. And if you notice in your bulletin this week, we are beginning again ordinary time. Ordinary time. Well, what is that? Well, it runs all the way to November, and it's a fairly large part of the Christian calendar. And we're sort of asking in this season, how should we then live in the very nitty-gritty, mundane parts of life? How are we to grow spiritually? How are we to maintain a rhythm of obedience in the ordinary time? We generally have, as I said, a fairly negative connotation of obedience in the modern West. It's essentially prohibitive, it's essentially restrictive, and primarily directed towards our individual freedom, which is, of course, our ultimate value. No one takes away, no one restricts, no one puts limits on my individual choices. And so we naturally recoil at the idea of something outside of us that should limit our choices and limit our freedom. And into that, our Old Testament reading says, you shall have no other gods before me. A few years ago, uh, authors named Christian Smith and Melinda Denton wrote a book called Soul Searching, and they coined a term which I probably have shared with you before, but it's moralistic therapeutic deism to describe what they consider to be common religious beliefs among American 
youth. And the creed, the, the um, sort of facets of this um, are a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life, and God wants us to be nice and good and fair to each other, and that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in the nitty-gritty of our life, except when He's needed to resolve a problem. Well, that's not that difficult of a religion. It doesn't demand very much of us. There's not really much to obey in that sort of idea. But it expands not just to youth, but also to adults. And there's a professor at Southern Oregon that wrote The Nun Zone, and he describes the Pacific Northwest, this is us, as living in a spiritual marketplace where individuals in their quest for self-fulfillment actively construct religious identities that are malleable and multifaceted, often blurring the boundaries that separate one faith from another. You may think, well, that's pretty obvious. I live in the Pacific Northwest, and and yes, it is, because we are part of this culture. We understand our friends and neighbors, and we understand how they think. And if we're honest, we probably have adopted and imbued some of that into our own thinking, this idea of being secular and spiritual at the same time. About 15 years ago, Powell's bookstore rearranged their religious section, where it once included Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Confucianism, the major world religions. Now, that's been reshuffled, and what's been added are all sorts of holistic health regimens, neo-pagan titles, earth-based religions, and these titles are all managed by a spirit team, offering sort of a buffet of spiritual choices. Well, what's going on here? Well, of course, in the Pacific Northwest, in Portland, no one religion can claim ascendancy, can claim ultimacy any longer. In fact, to do so is very arrogant and very close-minded. But it's deeper than this, because until recently, you could be secular or spiritual, but now you can be both. And you can pull in facets from any religion that you would like to. What's driving the demand side of the spiritual marketplace is sort of this idea of the canonization of the individual will, of individual freedom. There's almost a limitless array of spiritual and religious choices. It's syncretistic and polytheistic. Now, why the sort of mapping of the religious landscape? It's interesting, but the reason for this in this sermon is that it's exactly like the environment that this command was originally given in. God's people had been rescued from Egypt and its pantheon of gods, and now they're moving into Canaan, which is also polytheistic. And in this context, you would think that the command would be, there are no other gods, therefore worship me. But what does the command say? Instead, you shall have no other gods. Instead of saying first, all those other gods are fictitious while I am true, God says, I am better, I am more worthy, I am more faithful than all of these competing gods. Psalm 95 says, I am the great God, the great King above all gods. 
You see, the, the first commandment that I read to you is not primarily restrictive, but it's liberating. It's granting salvation from giving your life to all of these competing gods that will have you and will own you and will possess you. These other gods mimic God but cannot deliver. And so what God is saying is that He demands your worship, your fidelity, your devotion, but as a way to give you life, as a way to give you freedom, as a way to give you rescue. God is saying that He knows your context and He knows yourself. He knows you inside and out. And there are lots of competing options out there. There are lots of other systems. The Egyptians have their gods. The Canaanites have their gods. But what he is saying is that he is king above all of them. He is saying, I am the one who made you. I am the one who has made all things. I am the God who has rescued you. I am the God who loves you. Have no other gods. You see, freedom comes not from the lack of rules, but from finding the right rules. Think about, think about eating. If you're free from all restrictions, you, you eat and drink whatever you want, whenever you want, at some point you're going to be less healthy and less free. Freedom comes through obedience to that set of rules, to your own idea of what is healthy. And you begin to obey that in order to gain health in order to be liberated in a sense you oppose your own will in order to be healthy so we say well i want a third piece of cake right before bed and maybe wash it down with some eggnog but i'm going to oppose my desires i'm going to oppose my will so that i can be happy and healthy in the long run i really don't want to exercise today i'd rather just sit on the couch, but I'm going to because I know that it offers long-term healthy benefits. I'd rather go home from work early today, but that project deadline isn't going to move, and so I oppose my own desires and stay an extra hour to get it done so that I'm not totally stressed out for the next 12 hours until I come back to work. You see, freedom and liberty sometimes come from, comes from opposing our own will, from finding the right restrictions, not the complete lack of them. To truly live, we have to say no to ourselves sometimes. And to truly live, we have to allow God to do the same. To say, thou shalt not. It's not restrictive primarily, it's liberating. It's, gal it's deep uh, digging a channel in which your life can flow in the right direction. What the first commandment, commandment is saying, among other things, is that you are created by someone who knows you, who knows the world you live in, and is willing to challenge your will to restrict your choices for your good. If you see a parent restricting a child's choices, you know, don't run with scissors, don't run out in the street, don't punch someone on the playground because they didn't let you get on the swing, you know, you don't think, well, how unjust how oppressive that person, that little kid is never going to find their inner person. No, you think that parent is being absolutely wise. They're giving critical advice to protect their child. And the, the child's life is dependent upon a set of rules of laws to abide by. And actually, whether or not the parent provides boundaries is indicative of how much they love their child. 
That's the nature of the first commandment. It's a parental covenant. It's not only the rules of the relationship, but it's a guidebook that makes sense of life and makes sense of your heart. And obedience isn't the end goal, but it's the means to the end. The end or the telos, the direction in which the law is pointing is a thriving, healthy, loving relationship. And what do any of us do in loving relationships? We bow our demands to the other person. We allow them, we invite them to oppose our choices. To cross our will for the good of the relationship. This is the very nature of of a loving relationship. And otherwise, it's just an arrangement of convenience. It's two roommates learning to get along. Now, if you start with verse 7, you shall have no other gods, and then you read down through the next nine commandments. If that's your approach, then they'll kill you. They'll overpower you. They'll be drudgery. But you have to see the preamble that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, God is saying before he gives commands, I have been a faithful king. I have been a loving and doting parent. Now receive my will. Receive my commands. It's it's an issue of trust. He wants you to trust him as you begin to align your life with these commands. To trust him enough that even when they don't quite make sense to you, when they're hard, that you still obey because you know that what's driving that and what's foundational to those commands is his parental love. The exodus is the gospel ahead of the law. Before God issues commands, he gives compassion. Before he gives imperatives, he grants mercy and love. So the reason for obedience is not to earn salvation. It's not to stay in his good graces. Instead, it's the appropriate response to God's grace, to his prior rescue, to his prior love. You see, and this is incredible if you think about it, the one person in the universe who has the right to demand everything from you with no justification beyond the fact that he would say, I am God and you are not and you will do what I say. The fact that the one person who could say that and do it justly, instead, he takes initiative. He enters into relationship with you. He takes on the responsibility to love you. A few weeks ago, Josh, who I don't believe is here this morning, gave us an overview of what's called suzerain vassal treaties. Now, why did he go into this detail? Maybe at that point it seemed a little nerdy, things that only people, seminary types, would would be interested in. But understanding how the Bible uses literary features that were common in their time and borrows them and then subverts them and reuses them in a way that is very gospel-centered is very important to understand how the Bible works. And this treaty, this suzerain vassal treaty, was very common in the ancient world. There were demands and there were stipulations that the suzerain, that is the Lord, the conquering king, gave to his people, the people that he had conquered. But there were also obligations that the Lord then took upon himself. You will serve me and you will obey me and I will protect you and I will provide for you. There were mutual stipulations that the parties entered into. And the Ten Commandments look very much like those agreements, but they're different in very significant ways. And here's why that matters. 
Because here in the Ten Commandments, the suzerain, the Lord, He gives instruction not on the basis of having conquered the vassal, but on the basis of having rescued the vassal. It's very different. The foundation of the covenant isn't power, but it's parental love. And the stipulations weren't, as long as you both shall live, they're eternal. They last forever. You see, obedience is a two-way street. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that God isn't simply demanding obedience from you, but He's taking regulations and stipulations and expectations on Himself and saying, I will be faithful to you, not as long as you live, but for eternity. You see, the Bible borrows these very commonly understood treaties, but then subverts them and uses them to say something that is very different about this God. That this God gives commands because He loves. This God gives commands because He has rescued you and wants you to be liberated and live in to that rescue. Our obedience, then, isn't how we keep God happy. It's how we enjoy the relationship. But he's also laying down stipulations that he must obey. And we understand that all commands, all of the law, is not an arbitrary fence around our behavior to make sure that we don't have any fun. It's in fact, even when we don't understand it, as you walk into it and as you practice obedience, you begin to see how wise and how thoroughly invested these laws are in your benefit. You see, we think freedom lies in being our own Lord and Master. George MacDonald, who is a Scottish author, poet, and also a pastor, says that that's, that's actually hell. That hell is saying, I am my own. I can tell what is right for me. But what he argues is that this is completely isolating, and it's completely solitary. We're totally alone in that type of idea. You can't have a real relationship until you're willing to submit your will to someone else. But notice that God doesn't demand anything of you that He hasn't already done. Again, George MacDonald. Did He not thus lay down His life, persuading us to lay down ours at the feet of the Father? Has not His very life by which He died passed into those who have received Him? and recreated theirs so that now they live with the life which alone is life. Did He, that is God, not foil and slay evil by letting all the waves and billows of its horrid sea break upon Him, go over Him, and die without rebound, spin their rage, fall defeated, and cease? See, the beautiful thing about Christian obedience is that even when you don't hold up your end, God does. Even when you are disobedient, God is obedient to His own promises that have you in mind. He lets our sin, our disobedience, fall upon Him. The redeeming, rescuing God sends us the perfect Redeemer, Rescuer, to pay for our disobedience, to uphold not only God's end, but our end as well. You see, if you are in faith in Christ, you have obeyed because Jesus has obeyed for you. Now go and live with freedom. 
Now go and don't worry about how often you fail. Don't worry about how that's going to sever your relationship with God. It won't. You're not enjoying the relationship. You're not moving towards God, but he'll never let you go because he's obeyed his own promises and he's obeyed on your behalf as well. He obeyed fully for us. He submits his absolute authority, his right to demand our bowing, to demand our allegiance, and instead he grants it. He gives it. And he says, I will bow my will to you. I will give up everything to have you. That is the words of Jesus on the cross, that he submits to our need, that he comes and gives up everything to rescue you and to obey in all of the places that you have disobeyed. He gives up all of his rights and all of his privileges first. Now follow his lead. Do you see? Do you see how different that sort of obedience is? Let your will be crossed. Give up your demands. Give up your independence so that you can be wedded to him forever. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would let us be people who obey, not because we must, but because we can, because we can enjoy our relationship with you. Lord, let us, in fact, at the same time, take your expectations of us seriously. Let us do our best to follow you and to, uh, to obey the things that you ask of us. Not because we want to keep you happy, but because you are a loving Father who wants our best and who wants to give grace through us to a hurting and thirsty world. And I pray that we would be people who would stand up and say, I will. Lord, I pray that we would obey because of grace. We would obey out of gratitude. As we confess our faith, as we come to the table, would you help us to see just how deep your promises go for us, just how deep your sacrifice went for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.